You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, I'm Dr. Jim Del Rosso, and I'm very excited to kick off our podcast series, Derms and Conditions, with Dr. David Cohen, who is well known in dermatology. Uh, and uh, Dr. Cohen is at NYU uh, Langone Health, where he is the vice chairman of dermatology, and he is also a clinical professor uh, at NYU Grossman School of Medicine in the Department of Dermatology. And one of the reasons why I want to converse with Dr. Cohen today is I always have questions for him because we think of him as an academician, but David sees a lot of patients in the trenches. He's treating a lot of patients beyond just contact dermatitis, which we often hear him talk about, you know, and, and patch testing. He's treating a lot of patients with inflammatory skin diseases that are difficult cases. Not all. It, he treats the, the, the garden variety cases like we do, but he sees a lot of uh, challenging cases where he has to step up into utilizing some systemic therapies that many of us may not have used or don't use regularly. So uh, I like to call David and get his perceptions because he's actually treating patients. He's just not reading literature uh, and digesting literature based on what studies say. So I like to open up the discussion uh, with Dr. Cohen because I get questions about this, but my understanding Understanding, David, from speaking to you is you get anywhere from five to 20 queries a day, either through email or people calling you about COVID vaccine in patients that are on different systemic therapies that we use, let's say for psoriasis or atopic dermatitis, like monoclonal antibody agents, biologics, Janus kinase inhibitors. So can you talk about how you handle that particular scenario? Uh, thanks, Jim, and thanks so much for the opportunity to talk with you today. Uh, you're right on uh, with that. The calls come in regularly um, about the COVID vaccines and uh, not only how we deal with the medications patients are on, but uh, they're also concerned about reactions to the vaccine and what they may need to look out for. So for, for most patients that are on stable uh, immunomodulatory drugs, systemic ones, I'm having them getting vaccinated without any major change in their meds. Uh, for, for some patients who are on methotrexate, I'm asking them to hold the dose before their vaccine, so you give them a little time um, to wash out. For cyclosporin, we could take a day or two off. It really depends on the labile nature of their eruption. If they're very stable and they're clear and and they could sort of clinically afford to take their medicine down for a little while. Okay, we do that, particularly with methotrexate. The JAK inhibitors, they're very rapid on, have short half-lives, just skipping a couple of doses is generally okay. But once you start going further and further out, I, I don't want an unstable inflammatory patient getting the vaccine either. So I'm tending to let it go through, try to get the steroids if they're oral steroids down, as low as you can get or give them a few days, methotrexate for, for um, a dose before, and most others I'm continuing through. For, for atopic derms, I'm not making much change in the way of uh, dupilumab. It's really this small molecule orals I'm uh, making a few minor changes to. So why is it with cyclosporin that it's a shorter time that you have to be, be stopping the drug as compared to methotrexate? What differentiates them? I, I, I would go with the, the half-life of cyclosporin is about eight hours, right? So you could cycle it out pretty quickly, and it's a 
pretty rapidly acting drug on and off. Now, methotrexate uh, has a bit of a longer half-life. It's a little under a day, but we know the clinical effects of methotrexate far outlive the half-life of the drug. So, And we tend to be dosing it weekly, so it's very hard to time it any other way. So it just gets a little complicated. I think these days in particular, the schedule of the vaccine dictates what we're going to do rather than the other way around. So with these messenger RNA vaccines, like people talk about the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, as compared to the newer one, I believe it's a, a J&J a Janssen vaccine that there's that one dose that I think utilizes a different technology. How long does it take on the average for a patient to mount the response we're trying to get? Uh, be, you know, And then after that point in time, it doesn't matter what therapies they're using. Right. We're usually... Um, telling patients about two weeks after the last dose, uh, uh, depending on the vaccine, right? So the uh, the the uh, new J&J virus, uh, the J&J vaccine is an adenovirus vector, but it is a non-replicating adenovirus. So uh, we can use it in patients who are on immunosuppressive drugs. And I usually tell them, you know, you're going to get there in about two weeks, maybe three weeks um, before you could feel comfortable you've achieved uh, where you want to go with that. Um, for the, the other questions I'm getting uh, from patients and from uh, providers is uh, reactivity or, or uh, how they may safely proceed with the vaccine, particularly atopics that have a lot of allergic phenomenon. They may have contact allergies. They don't know how to move forward and there's a concern. Um, fortunately, the COVID vaccines have very few contraindications, right? And and the contraindication, the, the absolute ones are an immediate type hypersensitivity or anaphylactic reaction to the first dose, right? So that one's pretty obvious to us. Those patients really don't proceed to the second dose. Or they have a history of anaphylaxis or immediate type hypersensitivity to components of the vaccine, right? And, and we're largely talking about polyethylene glycol and polysorbate 80. So the um, two mRNA vaccines have polyethylene glycol 2000. The J&J vaccine, which is an adenovirus vector, but it's a non-replicating virus. So they're, they're all safe to use in immunosuppressed patients. Polysorbate 80 is functionally like polyethylene glycol, it's an ethoxylated sorbitan. So they kind of similar, they look similar to our immune systems. So um, polyethylene glycol sounds an awful lot like propylene glycol, and, and they're not the same. Propylene glycol is very small molecule, polyethylene glycol in these vaccines, very large molecules. So my patients with contact allergens to PG or other items, they're going ahead and getting vaccinated right? Um, polyethylene glycol is in a, a lot of products that we use. It's in oral preparations for colonoscopies. They're, they're in constipation meds, so things like Go Lightly and Miralax. They don't contain polyethylene glycol as an inactive ingredient. They are polyethylene glycol, right? Many drugs have polyethylene glycol in them. So patients often already come to the office having exposures and generally tolerating them well. So uh, most of your patients are gonna be safe to proceed. Uh, those that have some 
precautions perhaps they've anaphylaxed from foods or drugs or other vaccines. Those are people who you want to spend a little more time with. But if you look back at the data on the patients that have had a serious um, events like anaphylaxis within four hours, right? They tend to occur almost always within the first 15 to 30 minutes. So my advice to the patients are, look, on average, the average patient is going to hang around about 15 minutes. If you're concerned or you're a person who has had some vaccination reactions or drug or food reactions, hang around 30. And I often tell them, maybe loiter around another 15 minutes, maybe 45 minutes, because most of those cases are going to be captured and patients do well when they're, when they're treated immediately. Yeah, those loitering patients are the one that steal <laughs> or take a lot of your brochures <laughs> out of the racks because they try to do something with their time. Yeah, I think it's a good idea that if you've had anaphylaxis from something, you don't get that again. But you know that that was that was extremely practical. I, I want to ask you, and, and and I have a lot of these questions, and you know I I know a fair amount of a lot about a lot of these therapies and have researched some of them and certainly pay a lot of attention to them. But I want to get your perspective because we have a virtual barrage of information that as clinicians, uh, and think about people in the trenches that are not necessarily as academically involved. They're in their practices every day seeing patients. Fortunately, they're doing that. How are they going to digest in their mind this, all this information about these new therapies, the white noise versus what's relevant. So I, I want to walk through some of these things and start with atopic dermatitis with the things that we have already, because new things are going to come along, but they're not not necessarily everything we have before is going to be replaced or or is it going to be necessary to replace it? So if we could touch upon, you know, topical corticosteroids, we'll stop. We'll start in the topical arena first, uh, and talk about corticosteroids, calcineurin inhibitors like tacrolimus and pimacrolimus, and then the PDE4 uh, inhibitor that we have on the market, uh, crisoboral. If we can touch on those what your top line view is at this point in time. And then we'll get to some of the newer drugs and, and what you think about them in terms of how they might be integrated. So let's start with what we already have. Well, you know, so we have a, a great deal uh, of medications available to us to, to treat patients with inflammatory diseases. But Jim, there is a tsunami of new things coming and it is an amazing revolution. And no matter where you are practicing, no matter what type of practice you have, you will be positively impacted by the developments right now because we have new topicals coming, we have new oral agents coming, we have biologic agents coming, and there's going to be something for everyone out there, right? So I, I think it's an amazing time to be practicing dermatology. Uh, as far as corticosteroids, you know, they're the mainstay of therapy. I don't see them anytime in the near future or midterm future that that's going to change. They, th we have the flexibility of multiple uh, potencies and multiple vehicles. So we can really practically treat anybody's site with lots of topical corticosteroids, both branded and generic. We just have that ability right now. I think 
one area we run into, I see as a problem for atopic dermatitis is the chronic long-term use of mid and high potency topical steroids for those with moderate to severe disease. I think we're evolving out of that because we have good treatments now and, ev- and good treatments coming to sort of prevent atrophy um, and, and, and sort of just fatigue for patients having to place large, surf- large amounts of this on their surface. For mild or intermittent disease, the low and mid potency steroids are here to stay and, and they're going to continue to be a mainstay. So for atopics, I, I still tend to try to use bland ointment vehicles whenever I can, uh, those that have petrolatum bases. Uh, sometimes cream solutions, foams uh, may sting open skin, but are very appropriate as that um, epidermal barrier improves and they tend to be more cosmetically elegant. And what about, you know, I think it's important that you mention barrier because obviously the gentle cleansers and moisturizers are important for people to be using regularly, uh, diffusely on their skin. If, you know, with atopic dermatitis, and I think even with psoriasis, psoriasis has barrier impairment also, which just not talked about as much. And it's different in some ways than atopic dermatitis. But with the medications, we have those different vehicles. What about calcineurin inhibitors and PDE4 inhibitors, the agent chrysoboral that we have right now? Where, where does that stand with you? I like them and use them frequently. And and I think you brought up a really important issue. We get so excited by the therapies that we have and those that are coming. We, we can't forget to just talk about basic moisturization as critical for maintaining a, a good effect, right? To maintaining clearance. So as for the calcineurin inhibitors, tacrolimus, a very good performer, right? And we have the 0.03, a da- label down to H2, but our AAD guidelines of care that have been around for a long time allow us to use them under that. And the uh, 0.1% for 14-year-olds and above, I think that's indispensable. I-, I like the ointment base. That one I think is generally well tolerated on body when you start putting it on face and eyelids on really inflamed skin, burning and stinging is a real issue. Right. And so what I tend to do is introduce a corticosteroid of low potency on the face, the intertriginous areas, and have them slowly start mixing in the tacrolimus ointment to that steroid until they're off it about a week later. And we really reduce burning and stinging. But that is the main headwind of using calcineurin inhibitors. Same with pimacrolimus. Burns a little bit less, may have a little bit though less potency than the tacrolimus, but very easy to use on face and intertriginous areas based on the vehicle. Crisoborol, again, uh, mainstay of longstanding therapy uh, in intertriginous areas, face, and well-controlled areas on the body. Again, burning and stinging uh, was, I think, a bit of a surprise for clinicians because I think we relied on the label a lot where we saw a lot less burning and stinging in the package insert. But when we practically started using it in patients who were putting it on raw inflamed skin, we really got a lot of feedback 
that uh, it was not so easily tolerated. So you got to use the same strategies that you use for the calcineurin inhibitors. Yeah, my patients that have used uh, topical crisoboral without experience of burning and stinging have done very well, but we did see more than what we expected based on the data. Let's go to some of these newer agents that are in development of the aryl hydrocarbon modulator, topical tapinarov. These are all different. Each one has a, a unique mechanism of action. Rifumilas, which is a topical PD4 inhibitor uh, being looked at for psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, and also some data coming along on atopic dermatitis, which appears to have more favorable tolerability, uh, even being a PD4 inhibitor. Uh, and also ruxolitinib, which is a Janus kinase uh, agent, topical agent for look, being looked at for psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. What's your feeling on these? Because these are non-steroidal options, as you mentioned. Yeah, and I think these are really going to expand uh, the, the capacity for us to treat uh, mild and moderate patients. Uh, these are going to be an amazing addition to our armamentarium, and I think really will change the way we practice. You mentioned three uh, late-stage development products. When I'm thinking AD, I would sort of the highest level of excitement right now for AD is topical ruxolitinib. And that's a, a JAK1-2 inhibitor, right? And it, it's available right. orally. It's used uh, by our HEMONC colleagues mostly now. But as a topical agent, we saw phase two data for twice daily dosing in mild to moderate disease. Probably the best of any um, non-corticosteroid product we've ever seen. Right. So, you know, by by week four, about 45 percent of patients were clear, almost clear by week eight, about 50 percent of them were clear, almost clear. And these are patients who entered the trial with about three to 20 percent body surface area. So they were bona fide, mild to moderate. When you dove in a little deeper, the average was about nine to 10 percent. That's going to represent an awful lot of atopics that are walking into and, your and office. And it was predominant, predominantly moderate severity, even though they included mild. Yes. That's right. About three quarters of the patients had moderate disease. And you're getting a pretty impressive effect from this new topical. I guess the question out there will be the adverse event profile looks pretty clean right? What will the label look like? Will we have a label that looks like uh, chrysoboral or do we have a label that looks like the calcineurin inhibitors? Are there going to be warnings from say the parent molecule? That part's unclear. And I think that part will influence the regular uptake of it. If the label's clear, I think people will quickly take this up because they can pull some of those moderate patients back from the line of maybe having to go systemic, right? And uh, probably outperforming the other non-steroidals out there, as far as I could tell. No head-to-heads. It's just a gestalt on looking at the data. You know, when we look at the data on topical Tapinarov, and they have the long-term data available now in their phase three data, and Rifumilast, uh, you know, has has their data uh, with psoriasis, and and certainly we're seeing some come along with seborrheic dermatitis. Those agents we would anticipate would also be 
helpful for atopic dermatitis. They're not as far along in the development, clinical development and research development, though they're being looked at for those other entities. They may also be big performers in the atopic dermatitis marketplace for as non-steroidals. Do you, do you agree with that? My, that's been my sense. I, I think you, you hit the nail right on the head. Look, to pin her off, for those who've heard of it before or uh, are just reading about it, it's an aryl hydrocarbon receptor agonist, right? So it sounds kind of complex, but this process regulates important transcription factors of inflammation. And this generally functions as a sensor on the surface for environmental and microbiome stressors. So it's influencing uh, the way your, your immune system is interpreting its environment. And being an agonist has anti-inflammatory effects. Now, when I think to Pinarov today, I'm getting excited about psoriasis, although we did see encouraging AD data in their phase two, we got to see later stage data. And I think we're going to see to Pinarov for psoriasis before we see it for atopic dermatitis. Right. But again, that was looked at for plaque psoriasis, three to 20% BSA. And, you know, looking at over a third or 40% of the patients getting clear or almost clear, I think that's pretty exciting, right? And, and for daily application, right? So, I, I, you know, being able to treat areas where we don't want to use steroids for long periods of time, like face intertriginous areas, I, I, I think... Uh, I share your excitement about that. Yeah, I think with with, with all three of these agents, Topinarov, Rifumilast, uh, and Ruxolitinib, you know these diseases. We see the phase three trials. They're 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 shorter duration. They have to capture their data and submit for approval. But these are long term diseases, and I, I see these non steroidals as being very helpful in terms of the long term management. Maybe even with intermittent use, like is sometimes used with corticosteroids to reduce the side effects. Dr. David Cohen and I had such a great conversation that we decided to divide this podcast into two parts. In the next episode of Derms and Conditions, Dr. Cohen and I discussed systemic therapies for atopic dermatitis and psoriasis, including monoclonal antibodies and Janus kinase inhibitors. If you have any topics, concerns, or questions that you want to share with us, be sure to email us at podcasts at fred.health. That's podcasts with an S at the end at fred.health. And be sure to subscribe to Derms and Conditions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thank you.